0: This yes. is hell. Okey doke. The future ain't what it used to be. This is hell, and we once imagined a future where racism, misogyny, hatred in all its forms, including fascism, were on the decline. We're on the run. Instead, we find ourselves 23 years into the 21st century, and it seems like. Any and every form of hate you can possibly imagine is on the upswing There's a huge uptick in fascism and hatred Some states are actually making it illegal to teach real, actual U.S. history Making it a law to teach unfounded myths, fairy tales about the United States All in the name of enforcing centuries of white superiority While grooming children to consider people of color, and especially black people, inferior What these supremacists fear most is any challenge to their believed superiority and their view of black racial inferiority. What they fear more than anything, as today's guest argues, is black consciousness. In a few minutes, we'll speak with philosopher, political thinker, musician, he's a drummer, Lewis Gordon, author of Fear of Black Consciousness. Lewis is a professor of philosophy and department head at the University of Connecticut. He is editor of the American Philosophical Association blog series, Black Issues in Philosophy, as well as the book series Global Critical Caribbean Thought and the journal Philosophy and Global Affairs. Both He edited both with Jane Anna Gordon. He is also the founder of the Center for Afro-Jewish Studies, the only such research center, which focuses on developing and providing reliable sources of information on African and African-diasporic Jewish or Hebrew-descended populations. Lewis is on Twitter at Lew Gord, that's L-E-W-G-O-R-D. I'm your bitter, blind, broke gap radio show, live streaming and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Lindsay Gory. Lindsay, anything new by you outside of the incredibly freezing temperatures outside.
1: Well, I guess I got the snow off my car yesterday, so I didn't have to do it today. It didn't snow again. Um, So nothing
0: was frozen on your windows this morning.
1: No, but yeah, I've been seeing some real strange ice crystals on the inside of my car, and it's just like I have so little experience with ice crystals in the, you know, I've only lived in Chicago for like four winters compared to the twenty-something winters I had with zero ice in (laughs) Phoenix. Uh, so, yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah Jack, Jack Frost on the inside of Windows is absolutely beautiful I love looking at Jack Frost Is that himself. what
1: it's called? Yeah. I had Isn't no that idea cool? I was like, is something wrong with my car? I,
0: I did not knew, know that term until I moved to Chicago though But yeah, Jack Frost, I love it It's absolutely beautiful, I could sit there and stare at it for so hours So
1: many people are going to have to Google that right now <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, So, uh, Lindsay, please remind us What is this week's question from hell?
1: This week's question from hell Is what culture war battle Should this is hell pile on To get popular
0: (sighs) I loathe This question from hell The person with our favorite answer to this week's question Wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want, the This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie or toque if you prefer, as well as the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener supported This Is Hell. Remember, we do not take any grant money. We do not have any commercial sponsors. We never have and we never will. So it's all on you. (laughs) You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell At our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio We don't even make enough money to be a not-for-profit Or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio Or you can email chuck at thisishell.com As always, we will be announcing this week's winner At the end of this week's show, following Jeff Dorton in the moment of truth Lindsay, what is Jeff talking about on er, tomorrow's moment of truth?
1: Jeff explores ways to dissolve world leadership.
0: No, sweet. Awesome. (laughs) Glad he's working on that. I wonder if he's using acid. Listener Tom G is back at sending us guest suggestions. This time Tom writes, hi Chuck, hi Alex. This is Hell is starting 2023 with a compelling batch of interviews. I particularly enjoyed Brian Meir on Brazil's recent election. It's always great talking to our correspondent in Brazil. And Julia Rock on Big Pharma Profiteers. Keep up the great work and check out Julia's writing over at TheLever.com. Chuck, I don't know if there are infinite multiverses with an infinite number of possible worlds, but if there are, I hope I am in the alternate universe with the world in which a co-host of... The Straight White American Jesus podcast is interviewed by the host of the This Is Hell radio show slash podcast. Former fundamentalist evangelical Christian Bradley, a former evangelical Christian Bradley Onishi, has an intriguing new book hellishly titled Preparing for War, the extremist history of white Christian nationalism and what comes next. It sounds like the sort of thing that could make for a compelling conversation Tom, that includes uh, this from the publisher's website about Bradley Onishi's preparing for war. Watching the eerie footage of the January 6th insurrection, Bradley Onishi wondered, if I hadn't left evangelicalism, would I have been there? The insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021 Was not a blip or an aberration It was the logical outcome of years of a white evangelical subculture's preparation for war Religion scholar and former insider Bradley Onishi Maps the origins of white Christian nationalism And traces its offshoots in his book Preparing for War Combining his own experiences in the youth groups and prayer meetings of the 1990s With an immersive look at the steady blending of white grievance politics with evangelicalism Onishi crafts an engrossing account of the years-long campaign of white Christian nationalism that led to January 6th. How did the rise of what Onishi calls the new religious right between 1960 and 2015 give birth to violent white Christian nationalism during the Trump presidency and beyond? What propelled some of the most conservative religious communities in the country, communities of which Onishi was once a part, to ignite A Cold Civil War, through chapters on white supremacy and segregationist theologies, conspiracy theories, the Christian school movement, purity culture, and the right-wing media ecosystem, Onishi pulls back the curtain on a subculture that birthed a movement and has taken a dangerous form in taut and unsparsing prose. Onishi traces the migration of many white Christians in Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming in what is known as the American Readout. Learning the troubling history of the new religious right and the longings and logic of white Christian nationalism is deeply alarming. It is also critical for preserving the shape of our democracy for years to come. And this is a topic that we've talked on the show in the past with other past former evangelicals. So really interesting topic. And we're going to be uh, trying to get Bradley on the show for next week. Tom, thanks again. And again, great minds. Okay, better than average minds. Think alike because Bradley's book was already on the potential list uh, for guests, along with a book on white power and neoliberal culture, another on white flight, and yet another that's coming out in May called White Burgers, Black Cash We also got an email From Troy V Who says Dear Chuck I'm a big fan Of the show I was wondering Might you be interested In interviewing myself Or my uh, co-author Drew We wrote a book Called Half Earth Socialism Back in 2022 Which has provoked A bit of debate On the left We make the argument To take planning seriously Return to the root Of the socialist Calculation debate By looking into The little known Philosopher Otto Neurath And uh, ditch Prometheanism in practical terms, that means energy quotas, veganism, mass rewounding, and tools to allow everyone to participate in planning. We've made a video game when you play as a global planner at play.half.earth, which has been played by 100,000 people or so. People Or or stream even uh, takes memes Steam, sorry Even takes memes about the game We've also been on a few other shows And the book has been reviewed in several publications New Statesman, Jewish Currents It's not all easy going The New Left Review called me Paul Pot. (laughs) We had quite a heated debate with Doug Henwood A past guest on your show on his show in an environmental, I'm an environmental historian At the European University uh, Institute In Fiesole. While Drew is a PhD student In environmental engineering Though this is a bit misleading What he does is build climate models At Harvard Best Troy V Thanks Troy for writing to us We actually tried to get Either of the authors Troy or Drew On the show last year So it's great to hear from you uh, As listener Tove suggested We have you both on the show Last May You too can email us or tweet at us Or send us a message via Facebook With your guest or topic Rex Or anything you want to share And if you do, we'll likely read what you write on air Coming up, fear of black consciousness We will have this week in Rotten History Lindsay will be sharing more of your answers To this week's question from hell And we'll tell you everything happening on tomorrow's show Including this week's final guest Live from the United States, we're the law is far too often the crime this is hell and the law often being the crime is just an example of why black consciousness is so feared because it reveals the lengths to which white supremacists will go in order to enforce what they see as black inferiority which is proof in and of itself that there is no such thing as either white supremacy or black inferiority here to help us have a better understanding of black consciousness and why it is feared. Philosopher, political thinker, musician, Lewis R. Gordon is author of Fear of Black Consciousness. He's on Twitter, at Lou Gord, Welcome to This is Hell, Lewis.
2: Ah, oh, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Thank How you. How are you?
0: Very good. Thank you so much for being on the show. You know, the... Your book is one of those books where you read a sentence and I come up with seven questions. So it's it's kind of, it's really amazing. It's very enlightening. So I want to start with a really basic, and I hate doing this because I I never like using the words of the title of a book in my first question. It seems like a simple layup. So, So I hate to do this, but what do you mean by black consciousness?
2: Oh, black consciousness in a nutshell is the reality about the world we live in. Fear of black consciousness is fear of truth and reality, and you hit on it well when you talked about the efforts right now to turn away from truth and reality by creating a false history of, for example, this country, although in the book I talk about many countries.
0: How important do you think that false history of the United States is to white supremacy?
2: Well it's it's important in a variety of ways because one thing to bear in mind is that uh, the whiteness i talk about is very different from what an everyday human being lives and part of white supremacy and anti-black racism is to create a category of people who are above people and a category of people who are below people now if you have a bunch of people above and a bunch of people below. What the hell happens to human being? I had to throw hell in there since this is part of your program. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, it, it struck me, by the way, when you were speaking earlier, because, uh, you know, what a lot of people don't know about hell is hell is cold. The In Dante's, you know, uh, writing, the center of hell, it, when you have a lot of hatred, when you are so consumed by it, you are frozen, you're cold. And the message from that great poem of Dante's, is if you can let go of that hate, you can begin to thaw. And it ends beautifully, the poem, because the protagonist then suddenly goes outside and sees the stars at the, right before sunrise. So one of the things about white supremacy is to make white people live a lie. And to convince many white people of that lie, which is the notion of their superiority, Then it has to convince a lot of black people of a lie, which is the notion of our inferiority. So either direction you turn in, there is a lie. And this is one of the reasons why we're seeing a tenacious fight to maintain lies and lies ultimately are pleasing falsehoods that guide us away from reality. So
0: I would just want to touch on what's happening in current events, real quick, before we get into a lot of what you talk about about black consciousness, because I think this is a good example of what, uh, how it can be affected. What is the impact of the Memphis police killing of Tyree Nichols on black consciousness? How is black consciousness affected in these police killings that are recorded and then placed? that are played during the news or uh, found online over and over again. What is the impact of such killings on black consciousness, especially when they are shown repeatedly as in the police killing of George Floyd?
2: You know, as I listen to the news and the discussions about this, it really struck me that in the book, I have a, I do talk about uh, the problem with how policing has been constructed in the Euro-modern world, and that... And I gave examples that you have this problem in majority Black countries where the police are Black. And what this alludes to in very straightforward language is this. If you don't question a system, what you do is you change the players, but not the game. The issue here is the game. If the game is to dehumanize, exclude Black people, then simply putting black people in charge of that game with the expectation that the game is maintained is going to continue the same problem so the game in this case is a game of policing designed not only for the dehumanization but also for the the protection of a very idea of of property dignity and freedom as ultimately white if they had pulled over a white pedestrian you would not have seen that outcome and so this is what people miss and of course many people on the left they have an insight in this when they they I hate the word identity politics I I I give a a critique of it in the book because it's really identity moralism because politics this is the fear politics goes to the question of transforming power as functioning in a system and if we look at a lot of the narcissistic rage the outcry against talking about the system. That gives you an idea of what this is about. So it is not as simple as simply having black police officers. And when we see this, there is a, such a thing also as black anti-black racism. And a lot of people don't like to hear that, but it does exist. But ultimately, ultimately the issue here is the very construction of the enemy, even in the black police officer as a black person in this case a 150 pound young man so
0: do we in any sense miss the forest for the trees when we focus on the racial components of of policing instead of policing in general it is a critique that is focusing just on the racism of police officers does that distract us from the bigger issues of policing in general
2: One of the problems with how we talk about a lot of these issues is we fail to understand a both and. We often try to find in a reductive way a single answer when in fact the way the human world is, is there are always multiple factors, multiple things at work. So uh, the thing here in this situation, for instance, is that we need to understand that once you understand racism as a system in which its intelligibility, its meaning makes sense only against, say, uh, a a, a black person appearing. I give an example of the book, for instance, of when I was walking across campus at a Midwestern university uh, 30 years ago, uh, uh, I would teach on opposite sides of the campus. And I did that on purpose so I could just see students and meet with them, but it led to outcry in student newspapers because they thought they had a deluge of black faculty taking over. And it's because as I walked back and forth, people were shocked that they saw a Black person more than once that day in the position of a professor. And what this really brought about is this logic. If, if the attitude, if we buy into a system of our non-appearance, then many people from different racial backgrounds can support that system. So, but it's a both end. One needs to deal, there is racism, but the naivety is to think racism only takes the form of, say, an embodied white person maintaining it, maintaining it. Racism is maintained by society. And when we were talking about teaching about the actual history of this country, it's not as reductive as simply bad white people, good black people. It's about a society designed in such a way that it increases the probability of harm and dehumanization and degradation against certain groups of people we call Black or Native American, or we could call it the racial oppression slot. We could always become a society where we just push other people into those slots. That's the game.
0: You point out that you were not born with a black consciousness. You write that I very much doubt anyone could be. The same applies to a brown, red, white, yellow, or any other kind of racialized consciousness. We could go down a long list of identities without which we are born, yet we eventually learn and at times are forced into them. So who or what forces onto us these racialized consciousnesses? It, who imposes
2: these on you and I? Well, the short answer is our society. None of us, the mistake we make is we imagine that we are who we are completely independent of any social relationship. But what we are is actually a relationship to other relationships. And those relationships put us in situations of making choices. Not everybody comes out thinking the same way in a same social situation, but the pressures of the social situation create the options available to us. So, for instance, children, many children actually begin to develop a racialized consciousness and certain attitudes towards gender and sexuality and other things by the age of three. They did not born with, they weren't born with that in their head. They're looking for the cues of how to read and understand their society. And in fact, the psychiatrist and philosopher, Franz Fanon, said it very well. He's basically argued that what a racist society is, is a society that sets up its rules, its regulations, its institutions in such a way that to be a racist is to be a normal person. And this is the thing that we have to bear in mind. Once we take the position that racism is, abnormal. Then the task, and this is one of the reasons why there's such a fear of black consciousness, we take, a ta- we take on the task of constructing a world that is the greatest nightmare of the people who buy into the system. And the greatest nightmare for them is a day in which they ultimately become irrelevant.
0: To conform in American society, do you think that we need to be racist?
2: on I don't think it's exclusively racist uh, The reason is when I you may notice in the book whenever I talk about any what we call identity, because I argue that human beings are relationships, all identities are in relationship with other identities. So race makes no sense without understanding how we treat gender, sexuality, class, and a multitude of other relationships. what we do, have to, what we do buy into, and this is one of the problems with this society, and this goes back to Fanon, but others, W.B. Du Bois, all the way through the Richard Wright people, all the way to Ada Julia Cooper and others, we need to ask a very uncomfortable question, which is, what is a sick society? And this is something very different. We often talk about justice, but we may talk about justice in a way that we can imagine achieving what we call justice while people remain ill. A sick society is a society that dehumanizes or sets up human relationships in such a way that they are to break down. And so racism is among them, but it's not the only one. It's part of a larger, a larger spectrum of dehumanizing and exploiting practices. And think about it. We're in a society, for instance, that valorizes itself in terms of capitalism. But one of the things that people don't do is actually ask what capitalism is. And similarly, when people are critical of capitalism, they say socialism, but they don't ask what socialism is. But when we think about it, so you may notice I talk about this in the book as well. When we talk about capitalism these days, people just say the market, which is an abstraction. It's like this abstract God walking around. And what actually happens is the business of capitalism actually tries to eliminate other businesses. It's against the plurality of markets, the pluralism of human existence. And sometimes when we talk about socialism, we again, we focus on capitalism, but too many people think about eliminating the plurality of markets through which people live. So this would collapse them, capitalism and socialism, in that model as two sides of the same coin we need to understand that the human world is more creative it's a it's a world in which we can have multiple meanings and develop ways to live together and to embrace our dignity and freedom and flourish that would be healthy so one of the problems we 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 have to deal with is if we limit our imagination limit our material circumstances limit 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 our options then the the, the choices we make begin to be less about transforming the world, and we begin to focus so much on transforming ourselves that eventually we implode. In fact, we're living in an obsession on fixing the self instead of fixing the society, when a lot of the problems are in the society.
0: You write how you didn't—well, first of all, I just want to mention real quick, you were talking about the individual, uh, the feeling uh, that we have that we are free of social relationships, and we'll get back to that in a little bit because uh, that leads to a conversation about uh, neoliberalism. But uh, what do you believe—well, you you, you mentioned— you write how you have had many experiences of being called the N-word over the years, not tolerating it even when doing so meant receiving abuse, made it clear to me that the valorization of nonviolence and tolerance I heard throughout my subsequent adolescent years was profoundly mistaken. It's a recipe for cultivating in black people nothing short of an inferiority complex, standing up against white degradation even when we lose is frankly healthy. Deep down, most white people know this. They wouldn't do otherwise if the situations were reversed. Fighting against humiliation and disrespect enables us to live with ourselves. Why do you believe white people would not do the same if roles were reversed? Because I think this reveals uh, a lot about not just black consciousness, but white consciousness as well.
2: Absolutely. It's a double standard. Uh, I'm glad you read that passage. I completely stand by it. You know, it's, it's, not ju- it's not just belief. We have looked at peer, sit, examples of this in history. Whenever, whenever there is a, an, a statement of white people being attacked, white people gather and go and fight against it. Whether, you know, they, the very response at the level of national response to something ranging from Pearl Harbor all the way through in various communities when people are attacked in one way or another, from one white person back in another white person, et cetera. It's very important all the way through, even if we talk about domestic abuse, it's very important at a level of, of, of dignity and respect for people to go through the process of standing up for themselves. Consistently, consistently, we're, we, we have a drumbeat of telling black people we're not supposed to stand up and defend ourselves. And it's complete nonsense. The thing though that people need to understand, and this is maturity at work, is there are people who want to stand up for themselves without consequences. And that is that is that that is that is basically naive. Part of maturation is to understand that if you stand up for what is worthwhile, it's also worth fighting for. And so we have created a situation in which what is offered for people designated white, I say designated white, because there are people who are listed as white who don't live through what's called a white consciousness. But if we talk about what it is to be a human being, to part of being a human being is to be able to walk through the world with respect. And if you do not stand up for yourself and articulate that respect, you walk through the world with a sense of shame And this is a longer discussion, but it's connected into a lot of work in psychoanalysis and and other areas of psychology.
1: Before,
0: because one of the really fascinating things I found about out, I read in your book, was how you didn't have a black consciousness until you came to the United States. So before you came to the United States, you were born in 1962 in Jamaica. And you write, all my childhood images of authority, beauty, and love were of people who, in the context of North America and Europe, crossed color lines. You then mention your images of authority in your family, starting with your maternal great-grandfather, who was... Panamanian Liberian. You explain that other images of authority were your maternal great-grandmother, who was a Jewish woman of Irish, Scottish, and Tamil descent. Your paternal grandmother was Chinese and Scottish, and your many aunts uh, were of many hues, you write. You add, my main image of beauty was my mother, who was a dark-skinned woman of Jewish ancestry on both sides, as her maternal Irish-Jewish lineage was with her paternal Palestinian-Jewish one. Family for me was colorful. It still is. What uh, was your colorful family, as you describe it? Was that normal in Jamaica? Are color, colorful families, if you will, <laughs> normal in nations that are not
2: predominantly white? Short answer: Yes. And it, it you know, one of the healthiest things. I, uh, I I'm fortunate to have been able to go around the world many times in every continent except Antarctica. And I've, uh, one of my conclusions is one of the healthiest things, particularly for African-Americans, is to go to a predominantly black place and just see everyday life. It's also healthy for white Americans to understand that black people go in the rest of the world don't spend their everyday life thinking about white people or even thinking about being black. They spend their everyday life just being human beings. So it's very important to understand that many people enter the world simply as a person who is either love, loved and trying to learn among a community of love or in some cases because some people as we know are born in war and they're born in situations where they're trying to figure out why in the world is conflicts going on but what's different about uh, uh societies that are de- dominated by racist logic is it displaces what the source of the problems are by making the people into themselves the problem. Du Bois said it very beautifully. Basically, uh, well, not only Du Bois, but Richard Wright. I I, I give an example, you know, Richard Wright was walking with Jean-Paul Sartre one time in Harlem in the 40s, 1940s. And Sartre, the French uh, philosopher, asked Richard Wright, the African-American existential novelist, Uh, Tell me something about the black problem. And Richard Wright looked at him and said, there's no black problem. There's a white problem. It's how white people treat black people. Now, what he means by that is that if we think a little further, if we make people into problems, we don't deal with the societal conditions that construct them as such we don't deal with for instance double standards on employment we don't deal with redlining we don't deal with systematic issues of poverty we don't deal with uh, policing as a matter of defining crime as being black in the wrong place we don't deal with those issues those are all societally produced issues they're connected to instruments of power such as legislation political parties etc so ultimately ultimately What is very healthy is for many people to understand that people come into the world basically as people, and then we learn how to negotiate that world. And the task we all have, if we do political work, is how to build a world with options that could make meaningful choices, healthy ones. When
0: you describe your very diverse family, uh, does black consciousness have a more diverse, a more international or a global focus than white consciousness? Does white supremacy foster a more parochial, cloistered, you know, internalized consciousness that really doesn't care about the rest of the world, while black consciousness is far more in tune with
2: it? Short answer: Yes. If you think about when people think about whiteness, they define whiteness as pure. Well, pure means you eliminate everybody else. It's, it's very strange, isn't it? If 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 a family defines itself as white, it's, it means it's going to have a family reunion or a barbecue or whatever, party, and there are only white people there. Now, when black people define being black, if you're going to have a party, a barbecue, whatever... You have the whole family there because black people know that our relatives are white, brown, and everything else, the way I describe my family. Why this is important, it means that uh, that closed way would require that family lying about the actual family. It would actually mean, for instance, denying that they have black cousins, brown cousins, Asian cousins, Native American cousins, or even siblings. Now, at the the global level, one of the things we have to bear in mind is just as I said, I wasn't born with a black consciousness. Most children are not born with a white consciousness, and there are many parts of the world in which they're not going around trying to define themselves as a purity that excludes the rest of their, the 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 members of their family or societies or their relationship to the the rest of the world. But but here's the part about when I talk about black consciousness. You could, you, can be, you could be black and Asian and you're black. You could be black and Native American and you're black. You could be black and the list is long. You could be black and Russian and you're black. Black and Ukrainian and you're black, even though they're fighting one another right now. You could be black and and black. And this is something observed by 19th century black writers. Now, here's the thing. This is because when you think blackness, you always think of yourself in relationship to some something else. Now, this is very crucial because it's not only in relationship to groups who are not black, but it's also in relationship to other groups who are black. In the book, when I say black, I don't exclusively mean uh, African-Americans because I also always point out that many people make the mistake of thinking their local population is the population. So American blacks are the blacks, just like with Judaism. that many people think American Jews are the Jews. But the fact of the matter is there are many kinds of Jews in the world, many kinds of blacks. I talk about Dalits. Dalits understand themselves as Black. I talk about Kuri or Indigenous peoples of Australia, the varieties of them. If you ask them what they are, they're Black. Uh, if you talk about Maori, Black. If you talk about the varieties of Africans, Black. But here's the thing. None of them say that they're exclusive. They're All, all Black people are Black and. And this is the crucial thing. All human beings are really something and in other words we're not properly things there's always more to what we are and what racism and other forms of exploitation and oppression dehumanization do is they want us to close and reduce ourselves in such a way that we lack possibility that we're not that and and that's a crucial thing if we're struggling against that problem we need to open up the understanding that Although there are elements of us that connect to a part of a world we live in, say as an American or as a, you know, a person in the UK or as a person who is in China or as a, the list is long or as a person in Senegal or South Africa, that's part of what you are, but it's part of what you are as a context. But the lives you live, those are what you're always working at, becoming, articulating and building as a world that you could communicate that we share. And it's also connected to something as important that I also talk about called love. But that's a, a longer conversation. <laughs> so in
0: uh, you write how in uh, 1971, when you were nine, you migrated with your family from Jamaica to New York City. You write, my excitement from being in the city of a country often shown in movies was quickly transformed by the reality of the dirt, grit, and violence of the Bronx where I would live for nearly 20 years. It was there that I developed a racialized black consciousness. What does that say about racialization, about racism in the United States, when those of African descent do not have a black consciousness, a racialized black consciousness until coming to the United States?
2: Well, it it tells us that one, that it's not universal. Two, it tells us it's a rude awakening. And three, it tells us that it's societally produced.
0: So you also point out that our school, where you went to school, was where the Italian neighborhood on the one hand and the black in Puerto Rico, Puerto Rican one on the other, met at a central point from which each group was to go separate ways. I had not yet learned to see the Italian, Irish, and European Jewish children as white. They resembled some of my relatives back in Jamaica, none of whom identified as white. So what does that reveal to you about Black being black as well as white and uh, black and white consciousness when those who may be considered white in one place are not considered or do not consider themselves as white in others. How nebulous are the ideas of black consciousness and white consciousness or blackness and whiteness when they seem to be able to be shifting from one place to another, from one
2: time to another? I think in a way in the question you answered it. I know people, my own family, you know, it's important when people travel. When people travel, they manifest different uh, relationships in different parts of the world. I have relatives who are black in Jamaica, white in another place, and brown in another. I have a situation, I'm never white anywhere. But because of my multiple ancestry, I'm black in one place. Another place, uh, there are people who can spot my uh, Tamil Indian ancestry. There are other places people immediately see that I'm of Ethiopian descent, and they see me as East African. There are people who immediately could spot my Arab background. And because I am Jewish, there are people who are... And it's not just about looks. It's about also how one moves through the world. Part of being a human being is learning how to read other human beings. And we carry with us our experiences, our our struggles, our joys, our suffering, all of those things. And when we really pay attention to one another, we can see them. We could see them in in not only our children, our friends. We could also see them if we're in a place where people don't recognize us. Somebody's eyes may look at us in such a way that we say, oh, you realize who I am. So there's so many ways in which that is so but the lie remember i said this is all about lies the lie is to make us believe that we are as fixed as stone as permanent as h2o that kind of a thing when in fact human beings live in human produced worlds and because they're human produced worlds it's not only ours to live in but they're also ours to change
0: You also mentioned the meanings within phrases like from the Trump campaign of Make America Great Again. Within black consciousness, is nostalgia for the past, nostalgia for older, even more cruel forms of racism? Because I'm starting to think good old, whether it's in good old boys or good old days, (laughs) is a dog whistle for just being really racist
2: it is it's a dog whistle not only for being really racist but also really sexist and it also is connected to a basic logic that i talk about in the book between how we talk about leftism and right and the right we unfortunately often just talk about the right and the left by just looking at parties but right now we're dealing with a conundrum for instance the democratic party of today is a lot like the way the republican party of the the first half of the ni- of the of the uh, 19th century was you know leading up to you know the civil war nobody at that time could have imagined a, a progressive democratic party and a regressive republican party so already parties as an example are human produced uh, institutions now the era the way I talk about the right and left is let's look at the logic of what it means. Don't think about party, just the logic. The logic that makes people go to the right is that all parties have to respond to crises. And when you have a crisis, it means you have to make a decision. Now, some people are afraid of making decisions. So they would like to be taken out of situations of making decisions. And they usually see... that as a function of law, order, et cetera. But they also tend to make an appeal to traditions and a cherry-picked perfect past. If the past is perfect, then you imagine you can return to it. But of course, if you're going to return to this imagined past, you have to ask, what are you willing to give up to get there? And often you'll find what's being given up are civil liberties, freedoms, et cetera, to the point at which you eventually are in a fascist state. Now, That, in order to seduce people into that, it's connected to some deeper mechanisms. And some of these deeper mechanisms are a lot like if we think about the lies we're told that we believed when we're children, and it wasn't that our parents were trying to lie to us. If you think about children, Simone de Beauvoir talks about this in a beautiful way. Children think all adults are gods. They think adults are all powerful, we can do everything, and even though they get upset, uh, in a way if adults were gods, children felt safe. Now, when they become adolescent, the reason those years are difficult is because they begin to realize that the people they were obeying were not gods. Not only were children not safe, but even the adults were not safe. So at this moment, there's a form of anger, but there's also fear. Some people respond to that phenomenon by trying to return to childhood. Of course, the ultimate safety was the womb, but Another version is the imagined notion of an all-powerful father, and that's why these fascists always are trying to present macho, big, strong men, which is often an indication that these are weak men. But nevertheless, this valorization of macho-ness, strength, etc., is to give people the illusion that with these men, they're safe. So that Make America Great Again is a, is a dog whistle to say, put it in the hands of good, real men who Will be white men, but you know, there, there, there are black men who imagine they could be that way. But ultimately, it's to create a notion that is trying to tell you you're safe if you could contain and limit the movement of these other peoples. If you think about people who are critical of that, what they say is, you know, when I think about the past, we were never safe. We always had to make decisions, and all the present is the crisis of the moment. Is that it's our turn to make decisions? So we. If we go back to the past, we're gonna be dealing with the problems of the past that they had to make decisions to overcome. So let's make some decisions for the future. Now, there are people, unfortunately, who are afraid of the future. So although they identify as left, they want a kind of future that closes off any other decision to make. That kind of leftism slides into the right and becomes a partner with fascism. There's another kind of leftism, a more responsible, mature, humanistic leftism that says it's not about a return, it's not about closure, it's about conditions for possibility. And that kind of leftism mirrors what I talk about in the book, because the lowercase black consciousness was created by the the, the the right-wing reactionary closed world that says you're fixed in your skin as a black person. But the uppercase black consciousness I talk about is linked to the kind of politics and the kind of action that's premised upon uh, that are premised upon possibility. So ultimately, ultimately, a lot of these issues, when we hear these dog whistles, deep down, they're a struggle between people who would like us, in effect, to cover our heads you know, with a blanket because we imagine there's a monster in the room versus facing what may be there, turning on the lights and realizing there's nothing there and getting on with our lives.
0: We're speaking with philosopher, political thinker, and musician Lewis R. Gordon, author of Fear of Black Consciousness. He's on Twitter at Lou Gord. That's L-E-W-G-O-R-D. You argue that neoliberalism's focus on the individual nullifies ideas like racism because, as you point out, no black or indigenous person is discriminated against as an individual. Anti-black racism is against blacks. Anti-indigenous racism is against indigenous peoples. Neoliberalism thus nurtures racism by undermining the conditions of addressing it. It is, in short, reckless. Is there, then, under neoliberalism, is there no racism in the neoliberal consciousness? Are we already living in a post-racial world because we are all individuals and judged as such?
2: We're not in a post-racial world, and as I said, it is reckless. You can't handle a problem if you don't identify the problem. I talk about the distinction between neoliberalism and neoconservatism. Neoconservatism is what leads to what we have with Trump and you know MAGA and all of that, but it was there before them. Neocons- right? Neoconservatism basically does this. Neoconservatism says you want law and order, and here's the distinction. Neoliberalism believes in privatization, and because it believes in privatization, it will never identify. It doesn't want to look at races, genders, etc. So, in effect, it's not addressing the group problems. Neoconservatism recognizes groups; it just admits it hates them. In other words, it'll talk about it'll talk it'll demonize uh, Latin Americans as criminals, etc. It'll attack women, uh, basically arguing about, for instance, the castration of men through feminism. It will attack uh, LGBTQI plus communities, etc. cetera. So neoconservatism recognizes groups, but then just says it wants one group to be supreme versus the others. So it's, the racism is blatant in neoconservatism, but with neoliberalism, precisely because it doesn't recognize those groups it cannot actually make uh, uh, it cannot act in a way that makes change and if you look at a conflict between say a neoliberal and a neoconservative the neoconservative would say to the neoliberal for you to not be a hypocrite you must tolerate me but the neoconservative can say to the neoliberal for me to be to not be a hypocrite I don't have to tolerate you. So the neoconservative can walk all over the neoliberal precisely because the neoconservative can be consistent with their game plan. Now, beyond neoliberalism and neoconservatism, as we know, there are other forms of liberalism. But again, that's a problem with liberalism. The liberal, not the neoliberal, but the liberal still will have to tolerate the neoliberal and the neoconservatism which means in effect, they have to work hard at protecting the people who are trying to destroy them. This is one of the reasons why we need to have a more realistic understanding of what it is to build and transform institutions that can actually address communities, people who are being harmed. And also we should not lock it exclusively into the logic of harm, because the problem, if you lock it exclusively into the logic of harm then you collapse into a a situation in which you have a risk-free society, a society in which people will begin to, to become devoid of the virtues that are necessary to have a robust democracy. And to put differently, one actually has to be able to build institutions in which people can actually take the risk and have the courage to build better human relationships. And true human relationships are always question marks. If you think about, just very quickly, if you think about what it is to find a life partner, someone you love, not somebody you you own, someone you love, it means every day you get you open your eyes and look at that person, there's a possibility. When you live in a society you love, it's not that everything is foreclosed, every day you have a possibility. So it's very important to build communities of possibility, and that cannot be done by going back. One has to have an understanding of what it means to go forward.
0: You ask, how can one breathe under such circumstances? This concern with breathing is one of the hallmarks of black consciousness. What does it say about black consciousness when the simple but necessary, life-necessary act of breathing (laughs) is so significant within the black consciousness is the very act of breathing, the very act of existing revolutionary in the black consciousness is living an act of defiance.
2: Absolutely. I mean, whether we talk about being the hulls of of slave ships, whether we talk about lynching, these are all situations of cutting off air, asphyxiation, but they also are allegorical. When we think about what oppression is, oppression is an effort to disempower a people, and this is a very crucial thing to think through, because you see we have a we're living in a period right now where people mistakenly look at power exclusively as coercion, but this is part of the neoliberal and neoconservative model, and it's something that's actually inherited from Elizabethan England, actually, but all the way back to thinkers like Hobbes and those. But, but to put it very bluntly. What power is, is the ability to make things happen with access to the conditions of doing so. To be, to live, everybody needs power. If you didn't have the power to get up this morning, we wouldn't be having this conversation. And if we didn't have access to the technologies through which to communicate between Chicago and here, we wouldn't be having this conversation. So these are manifestations of power. But that's power in the good sense. Power enables you to do things. There are people who want to hoard power. They want to use that ability to block other people's ability to do things. So there are people who use power exclusively for the disempowerment of others to hoard power into the hands of the few. Now, if you look at what racism is, or if you look at what sexism and many of the other forms of oppression are, They ultimately come down to disempowering of people of their capacity to live everyday lives as human beings. That's why they struggle with double standards all the time. This means if you're struggling against that, you must empower them, which means that one has to unlock the capacities. So this means then that the individuals who are hoarding power, because they've defined themselves as the hoarders, if they lose that, in other words, Ironically, you have to disempower their disempowering. Then you open it up more for others, but you also now make those individuals no longer relevant because their basis of appearing and belonging is practices, is the set of practices of disempowerment. I I use a different metaphor. Audrey Lorde has this metaphor called the master's tools will not tear down the master's house. But what I say to that are two things. One, masters don't build things. It's the enslaved people, the workers. They're the ones who build things. And in fact, the lie of colonialism is that colonists build things. No, they didn't. Even today, the people, Trump never built anything. No, he, 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 he rips off workers who build things. So if we think about people who build things, what we have to understand is the master is no it's the workers' tools, the community's tools, so use our tools and build other houses. if you build enough better houses after a while, the so-called master says, "Yo, why is nobody coming over my house?" and after a while, even though his house is there it's lose it's it's lost it's lost it's power right of mastery there are now many houses, and in fact, the other houses may have better food. Uh, tasty people might be dancing, livable life. In other words, that is what this argument is about. It's, it's, it's about build a better society. So we should use our tools to do that. And that means that we should understand that all of us, all of us have a positive capacity of power. And this is the thing. I'm, I'm, I'm very critical of a kind of leftism that's anti-power. It makes no sense at all. If you're anti-power, then you're going to leave power in the hands of those who dominate you. You, We need to create a better conception of power that enables people to grow, to flourish, and to live livable lives.
0: You had COVID, and I want to ask you a couple of questions about it. One is you talk about how many people who uh, identify, I guess that's the right word, uh, as uh, Black Americans, they do not want to go to the hospital. They have no problems with vaccines. They have no problems with caring health professionals but there is a fear of the hospital. What is it about the hospital that leads to that kind of fear that is different from seeing a healthcare professional or getting a vaccine?
2: Well, yeah, I had COVID before the vaccine was even developed. So I'm one one of the long haulers. And yeah, I'm one of the people who almost died. And one of the things, yeah, absolutely. Studies after studies have shown that despite what many people may think hospital most hospitals most uh most of the health uh professional community although they may be good willing they may be in in their hearts right they're not ill-willed this is back to the point about the game the institutions are really designed in such a way that a lot of black people just die we don't get really equal treatment we don't really get the 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 kind of understanding of the specific the specific conditions we're struggling with, and in many cases, there are even there are even uh, medical approaches that treat that that treat us in such a way that that we are supposedly tougher and can endure pain. The list is just long. So, if you look at the actual figures, if you were to look at them demographically, black people were just dying more than white people from this illness, and these are connected to a lot of other factors. Now. One of the things that's really crucial that I knew is is that because I'm from a family that really preserved a lot of the knowledge and the knowledge from the various communities, from my, my Asian and African and you know, just variety of backgrounds, there are a lot of things I grew up understanding. I understood expectorance. I understood what what you do for fever reduction. I understood a lot of things, and I had to do a lot of self-care. Now, I'm not saying that everybody should do this, because not a lot of people study these in the same way. But the basic issue, and this is what Frantz Fanon, um, uh, uh, a medical a uh, a medical, uh, a psychiatrist and a theoretician by the name of also Francois uh, Tesqueles and many others have studied, they argue that if the medical institution is itself sick, and they've defined the sickness in such a way that it actually makes one healthier to be a sick person, then they are sick institutions. I could put it in a way that's a little more um, palatable for the listeners. Frantz Fanon noticed something. He would, re- clients would come to him and they would talk about the abuses they're having at work, the way they're treated by the police, et cetera. And what Fanon began to observe is that his task as a psychiatrist was to try to make the patient or the client at home with her, his or their society. But how do you make a slave happy with slavery? How do you make a black individual happy with racism or a woman happy with sexism or a a gay person happy with anti-gay sentiments? And the list is long. The problem with that is you would have to turn that person into a sick human being. In other words, they're suffering precisely because they are healthy in the psychiatric sense. So Fanon saw the task of changing the hospital and changing the society in such a way that healthy people do not suffer. Well, right now, for many Black people, our our, our, our medical institutions, our educational institutions, in short, are institutions of power. Are institutions that are designed in such a way that the people that they're designed for unhealthy Black people, so to speak, rather than healthy Black people. Healthy Black people should be able to go through and be treated in such a way that our our understandings of self-respect, our our ability to process information, our understanding of what it is to be able to be treated as an adult human being are nurtured and respected. But very blatantly, very simply, I saw a lot of those places as simply dangerous. And one of the things I learned, and a lot of long haulers learned, for instance, a lot of us were ahead of the medical reports of what was coming out. C- coming out. There are forms of treatment that would have killed us. But again, we're, a, we're a short time in a radio program, that would be a longer discussion. But for many black people, Those institutions are dangerous places.
0: Just two more questions for you. One is that uh, you write about white narcissism and the varieties of consciousness it perpetuates. How do you see white narcissism in action? And do you think the white people who are practicing this narcissism actually recognize that they are being narcissists at that point in time?
2: Well... The first thing about most narcissists is they'll never recognize themselves as narcissists but <laughs> but 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 i have to say two things first let me start with uh human beings are narcissistic creatures it's not that narcissism is intrinsically bad if you think about what we spend most of our time doing as human beings is paying attention to other human beings in fact people listen to this radio program because they live in a human world and they want to hear human voices that is normal that is how we create the world we live in art all of these things gardening food uh, theater literature all of that is an expression of the human world so hum- humanity is a narcissistic uh reality that's actually a good narcissism bad narcissism or narcissistic disorder is when the, the position is not to connect with the rest of, hu- of, of human reality, but to control and block the development of the rest of human reality. So I could give it in a, a, an example that could make this a little clear. If you were to have a child and tell that child every day that that child is better than all other children, Then you also tell that child, because that child is better than all all other children, that child should always get whatever he, she, or they want. Then you add to that child the belief that if he, she, or they never— any instance in which they don't get what they want, they are a victim. You are going to produce a schmuck. You're going to produce uh, 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 somebody who walks into a room with a superiority complex— and is ultimately going to think that the entire world depends on whatever he, she, or they want. Well, what I've just described is the history of the emergence of white supremacy. White supremacy is to say, regardless of performance, a white person is better, that at any moment, a white person doesn't get what he or she or they want. There's a problem. That ultimately, regardless of how many people are killed, suffered, etc., the main issue at work is the happiness and the life of a white person that is white supremacy white supremacy is a form of narcissistic disorder and Fanon actually said that but many others WB Du Bois many people when they study that say that and here's the thing that's interesting I uh I I, I gave a lecture uh in 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 front of a population of young people who are there you know, a few hundred of them and they had read the book, and I, 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 I raised this because one reviewer was saying, you know, it's interesting, part of narcissism is to is is to say anytime people are talking about phenomenon, they're talking about you individually. There are many white individuals who are not with narcissistic disorder. They're not invested in this. But there are people who get defensive about this. So I'd ask the, the, these young people, you know, that section on um on whiteness as a form of narcissistic disorder. Um, Have you observed that And all? All of the young white people said, it's totally true. That's how they see a lot of their parents. That's how they see the whole discourse against critical race theory. That's how they see uh, a lot of political discussions work out. That's how they see uh, uh, their interactions sometimes with certain relatives and friends, where if they walk into a space where there, are other, where there are black people, or others in the room, there's a presupposition that the white individual must be the leader, or that's where reality begins. And in fact, quite often around, around this, this phenomenon, I think Fanon actually described it beautifully in the title of his first book, Black Skin, White Mask. He argued that anti-black racism tries to seal black people into our skin, but many people misunderstood the part of the book that said white masks. Many people interpreted it as black people wearing a white mask. But no, what Fanon was arguing is that many white people wear a white mask. The way actual human beings are is not the way the the idealized construction of white people tells white people they're supposed to be. And there are many white people who have their insecurities, their fears, or humility. But when a black person shows up, they have to put on the mask and pretend they have the answers to everything. That is unhealthy. So the white mask is a, is is the mask of of a narcissistic disorder and white supremacy, and the, the the sealed black skin is the lie of black inferiority. So yes, when I just talk about narcissistic narcissistic disorder and white supremacy, so in fact even the word supremacy, there's something hokey, something really weird about people walking around calling themselves superior. You know, at the end of the day, all of us are going to eat, sleep, and you know what, and die. Life goes on. We're we're not that special. We're simply living creatures trying to get through our time on this planet. And those of us who fail to understand that are going to make the rest of us miserable.
0: Lewis, I have one last question for you. I just want to point out to the listening audience that they should definitely check out your book, The Fear of Black Consciousness. One of the other things that he discusses, I mean, there's a lot more that he discusses in the book, but the role of neoliberalism, neoconservatism, fascism, as well as colonialism and imperialism in the emergence of uh, and the spread of the COVID pandemic is absolutely fascinating. We have been speaking with philosopher, political thinker, musician Lewis R. Gordon, author of Fear of Black Consciousness. Again, you can follow him on Twitter, at LouGord, Gord, that's L-E-W-G-O-R-D. And, Lewis, I promise we do this with all of our guests. Our final question is what we call the question from hell. It's either the question we're going to hate to ask, you're going to hate to answer, or our audience is just going to hate your response, or the fact that I even asked the question in the first place. So how sustainable, this is where our conversation started, how sustainable is denialism of history and what happens when myths become institutionalized uh, how much force is needed to keep those myths and that inaccurate history going how much force does it take
2: the truth is they're never sustainable the, any anything that takes us away from reality exhaust themselves they're never sustainable every time look throughout history every time there turns to the right they always, they always fall apart very quickly because they require using of too, ma- too many resources. When things really fit well, anna Julia Cooper said it beautifully, it means a little bit invested have greater outcome. Right now, if you think about how much is being put into denial, it is actually using up our capacity to actually build a better society. So anything, any, any idea that we cling to without change, without adaptability, would be at our peril. So the end, you know, even if when we're talking about the phenomenon, yeah, of 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 anti-black racism. Look, look, human beings of uh, Homo sapiens, what we call what we call what we are, been around nearly three hundred thousand years. We're talking about a period of something, in something coming around a few hundred years, and it's already it's already just pulling apart at the seams. So right now we have a lot of urgent issues to deal with as a species on our planet, and we need to get rid of wasting time with things that ultimately turn us away from reality.
0: Like huge distractions, like culture wars. Uh, I, cannot, yeah. I cannot thank you enough, Lewis, for being on the show. I am going to annoy you for the rest of your life by sending you <laughs> radio interview requests. So thank you so much for being on the show. I've really enjoyed this conversation, and the book is absolutely so fantastic. So thanks for being on our show.
2: Thank you so much. I enjoyed it thoroughly, and I look forward to future conversations with you. And a big shout-out to the audience. Be well. And be courageous.
0: Thank you very much. And Happy New Year. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this. Is hell if what you just heard from Lou Gordon on the fear of black consciousness. If that was in some way enlightening or made you feel like you actually learned something or to realize that yes, this really is hell. Show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursdays at 10 a.m. Chicago time, and is podcast shortly after at Patreon.com/slash hell. or you can show your support for a completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting ThisIsHell.com and clicking on Support. Lindsay, please remind us what is this week's question from Hell, and tell us how our listeners are responding so far.
1: This week's question from Hell
0: wasn't Lewis awesome?
1: Yeah, Lewis was awesome. That's <laughs> why I'm like, I need to play music now. I'm still like, I'm still processing. It's that. Still really? That was like beautiful. It was like a philosophy lesson, you know, for free. Yeah, <laughs> thank you <laughs> very much, Lewis. <laughs> Exactly. I'm still. I want some background music here. And oh, you know what? My computer died. <laughs> yeah it's dead right now <laughs> no no I'm just like I said just trying to figure out my job while also taking all that in uh, <laughs> okay Um, Lewis uh, that's our post about Lewis our question from Hellpost is what culture war battle should this is hell pile on to get popular <laughs>
0: This is going to be... This is not going to go
1: well. Oh, okay. Uh, (laughs) I don't know. Some of them are... Some of them, you know, (laughs) could work. Uh, (laughs) Paulo S. says, What culture? War? Should... This has helped Pylon to get popular? It's bidet versus what's a bidet? <laughs> and they put a check mark versus bidet, as in that's the side to be on, versus what's a bidet.
0: Lindsay, hands down, the funniest thing I ever saw on that sh- stupid show, House Hunters, was this uh, one couple that was looking at a house. Uh, one of them said, This house, this is an absolute requirement for me. No home that we look at can have a bidet in it.
1: It can't have a bidet? What's wrong with them? I
0: just don't understand. Uh, You know, if there is a bidet in there, you can have it taken out if you'd like. But just the (laughs) the actual presence of the bidet was like, I'm not going to buy this house. There's a bidet present in that home. It was the craziest thing. That
1: is crazy. They are clearly on the wrong side of that culture war. They
0: also uh... said, they also said, I don't want any trees near my house because I hate the sound of birds.
1: Yeah, obviously. There's something going on there. I think they have that sickness that Lewis might have been talking about. <laughs> exactly,
0: exactly.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, I've only, you know, they don't have them here in America, bidets like they do everywhere else. And I used one once, and it was like cold water. I was like, if you're going to buy a bidet, buy one with hot water. What's wrong, <laughs> What's wrong with you? Okay. <laughs>
0: A horrible way to wake <laughs> up in the morning, too.
1: Or I guess they were into it. I don't know. Teach uh-huh. their own. I don't know. Uh, Mark A., what culture war battle should This Is Hell pile on to get popular? Mark A. says, I read on Super Truth Social <laughs> that the libs in the Democrat Party are going to ban birthday cake candles. <laughs> Pick a side and get ahead of this soon-to-be-trending <laughs> anger generator.
0: You know, birthday candles do contribute to climate change. So, it is something we should be concerned about.
1: Yeah, there's some CO2. Who knows what's in that wax (laughs) they use? That wax that you drip all over your birthday cake. Yeah, and then you use only beeswax candles (laughs) on your cake.
0: (laughs) That's part of it. it. We're starting a culture war already.
1: Yeah, (laughs) I'll join on I can join any culture war. It's true. (laughs) Uh, Okay, the. The last one here on Facebook from Neil C., our friend Neil C., what culture war battles should This Is Hell pile on to get popular? The left should reclaim enjoyment. The right has had a monopoly on enjoyment. <laughs> For far too long
0: <laughs> So the person with our favorite answer to this week's question Wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell Merchandise you want You can check out all of our merch right now By going to thisishell.com and clicking on support Tune in later this week when Lindsay will be uh, Or actually Dan will be reading The rest of your answers to this week's Question from Hell uh, And that will, and then we'll be announcing our winner Following Jeff Dorchin in The Moment of Truth Lindsay, again, what is uh, Jeff talking about on The Moment of Truth?
1: Jeff will be exploring ways to dissolve world leadership
0: We will have the rest of your answers The question from hell later this week It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory This week in Rotten History On January 30th, 1972 51 years ago this week In Derry, North Ireland Against the background of several years of ethnic and sectarian violence in the province More than 10,000 people gathered for a march to protest British rule, and in particular to protest brutality by British police who had begun early morning raids on people's homes to arrest suspected Republican militants and jail them without trial. That's Irish Republican, not as in Republican Party here in the United States, and early morning police raids of suspected militants' homes that sparked violence by those under foreign military rule. And this was in 1972, yet a little over 50 years later. United States and Allies Actually, I should say 30 years later The U.S. and Allies Would be doing the exact same thing During the early years Of the United States' defeat In the Iraq War In defiance of a ban on assemblies The demonstrators began marching Toward Derry's city center But found their way blocked By British paratroopers After a Scattered exchange of thrown stones and rubber bullets The soldiers moved in and began making arrests Moments later and without any warning They opened fire on the crowd of demonstrators They shot 26 people, killing 13 Most of the victims were in their teens or 20s And if you look up what happened in Fallujah, in Iraq, in 2003 With U.S. troops firing on protesters It's pretty much the same thing. In a later investigation, the paratroopers insisted they uh, had fired on people wielding bombs or other weapons, but other eyewitnesses all testified that they had shot unarmed people. A hastily convened British tribunal cleared the shooters, naturally, and the incident became known in the global news media as... Bloody Sunday. Years later, in response to a much later inquiry which issued its findings in 2010, UK Prime Minister David Cameron rose in the House of Commons to offer an apology for the murders which he called unjustified and unjustifiable. But prosecutors ruled that due to a lack of sufficient evidence charges would be brought against only one of the British soldiers whose case is pending to this day 51 years later, also in Rotten History on February 4th, 1899, 124 years ago this week, units of the U.S. military based in Manila, having taken possession of the Philippines from Spain the previous year in the Spanish-American War, found themselves in armed conflict with Philippine national insurgents who were just as eager to get rid of the Americans as they had been to get rid of the Spaniards. Who knew that people upset about being occupied by one foreign nation would not be keen on another foreign nation immediately continuing that occupation? A few minor skirmishes escalated into a large-scale fighting that continued through the next day. The Philippine president, Emilio Aguinaldo, tried to broker a ceasefire, but it was rejected by the top American general. Because that's what nations claiming they're bringing liberation often do And that is simply become the new occupiers More than 500 Philippine soldiers were killed along with some 50 to 60 Americans The so-called Battle of Manila thus became the first and most deadly episode of the Philippine-American War Which lasted more than three years and solidified the United States colonial domination of the islands In other words, it was the expansion of the American empire to the Pacific The war killed some 18,000 Philippine soldiers and 6,000 Americans along with an estimated 200,000 Filipino non-combatants who died of violence, famine, and disease reminding us that non-combatants are always the leading casualty of any war and the war in the Philippines was one of many U.S. imperial wars that you never get around to learning about in high school history class for some reason now that's rotten history and this is hell Lindsay who is coming up as our next guest here on this is hell
1: tomorrow we have Katya Schwenk who wrote the Baffler magazine article the crime wave that wasn't Burlington tried defunding the police then came the backlash Katya is a journalist based in Phoenix, Arizona. Hey, look at that, <laughs> writing
0: about Burlington, Vermont. She yes. went all the way to the other end of the country.
1: Nice. Her work <laughs> has appeared in The Intercept, Business Insider, The American Prospect, and other places.
0: And, of course, we will have a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. I am your bitter, blind, broke, Gaptooth radio show, podcast, live-streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Lindsey Gorey for producing. This is not democracy now or ever. This